0: No, Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to Superman. Welcome back to Superman Forever Radio. I am your mild mannered host, J. David Weider, and this is episode 19. And the first episode with the updated twice-weekly format. And this week we're going to be talking about kryptonite. A lot. Before we do that, I want to remind you to visit supermanforever.com and vote in the last round of Metropolis Idol. This is where you get to choose the official Superman of the show. Right now it's pretty heated with George Reeves going toe-to-toe with Dean Cain. So whoever wins next week's topic will be all about them. So depending on your votes, next Sunday will either be an episode about Dean Cain or George Reeves. Also, the winner will appear on promotional materials for the site and podcast, which will be distributed through the 2011 uh, Superman Celebration Metropolis, Illinois, this June. So remember to vote. The poll will be open until midnight this Wednesday, and the winner will be announced and discussed next Sunday. Speaking of Metropolis, I'll be doing a pair of episodes from the Celebration, which will be posted on Thursday, June 16th, and Sunday, June 19th. So if you want to be a part of the show, email me and let me know, and we can begin to make arrangements. Now at this point, details are still being worked out as far as the where and when, and as the celebration schedule begins to become a little bit more firm, I'll have more details. And one final note, tomorrow we'll begin the Superman Forever Daily Planet, which will be short breaking news segments. And this sort of is—it's sort of an extension of the podcast, which allow me to get the news to you faster and a little bit more current than before. Because with that once weekly format, even with the twice weekly format, by the time I get sit down to record it and t- discuss it, it's probably already been all over the internet. So I do want to be more topical, and more on top of that. And it will have its own feed, but it'll be available at both SupermanForever.com and at the Superman Podcast Network. And of course, come back here every Sunday and Thursday to discuss those stories. And speaking of news, let's play a quick promo and then come back to talk about the events that happened this past week.
1: Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at GreatCrypton.com We're sitting on top of the story of the century here.
0: So as far as news this week, the, the big news, which isn't really news at this point, is that Zack Snyder has found Lois Lane. So right after last week's episode, again just like Henry Cavill, Warner Brothers announced the casting of the iconic role. Amy Adams, fresh off her Oscar nomination for The Fighter, will play Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane in the 2012 slated reboot movie. So far, the original Lois Lane, Noel Neal has given high praise according to SupermanSupersite.com and Margot Kidder has also given her approval. So, since I know Zack Snyder sitting in an office somewhere, crying over the Sucker Punch box office reports, wondering if J. David Weider has an opinion, let me say I have a big opinion, and it is a big approval. Not only do I like Amy Adams in general, but she has a quality that immediately brings Noelle Neal to mind, and that's a good one-two punch right there. Now, Adams added, What I love about Lois Lane is that she's been very consistently strong, successful, and independent. In other Superman movie news, looks like the production, which is slated to begin filming in August, will be shooting in the Chicago area area, rather than Canada, which was previously rumored. The big difference between the two? Military equipment. The U.S. had it, Canada didn't, and that ended up being the big deciding factor. Meanwhile, the other Superman movie, Superman Requiem, which I mentioned a few episodes back, has not only met its $8,000 production goal and then some thanks to donations from people like you and I through the site Indiegogo.com, but that production has also found its Superman. Martin Richardson will play the Man of Steel in the independent movie. The film is slated for release in November of 2011 and will be available for streaming and free download. And you can bet we will do an episode on that. And more details on that can be found at www.themanofsteelisback.com. In an in another odd piece of movie news, a Justice League movie appears to be on Warner Brothers slate for 2013, featuring all, featuring all the big guns, such as Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, and the movie's even been confirmed by Jeff Robinov as being in development. However, Ryan Reynolds says he isn't involved with the film as Green Lantern, and Zack Snyder told the press straight up the Justice League film is not connected to his Superman or Christopher Nolan's Batman, so it'll be a lot like the Justice League Mortal, where... They had a completely different cast. It's going to be its own thing, and I don't... Uh, you let me know. I mean, what, is that a good idea or a bad idea? Or wouldn't it make more sense to do, and I hate to mention this on this show, but what Marvel's doing is build that film universe, and then, I mean, we're looking at... The Dark Knight was one of the highest-grossing films of all time, It's still in the top ten. It's not like that wouldn't bring in some box office appeal, even if you're not working with Christopher Nolan. But let me know what you think of that, because your opinion is one I'm interested in right now. And finally, uh, just a reminder, next month we'll see the release of Action Comics number 900, which will feature stories and contributions by a cavalcade of talent, including Jeff Johns, Richard Donner, uh, so much more. So be sure, um, if you have a a pull list at your local comic store, be sure and uh, order that. And, uh, I mean, this is pretty big. When you think about it, we're not too terribly far. We're about four years from uh, Action Comics number 1000. That's pretty massive. Pretty massive. 900 issues. Congratulations to Action Comics. And that wraps up our news for this week. Let's go ahead and listen to another promo, and then we're going to talk at length about Kryptonite, Superman's greatest weakness.
1: The Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age... I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion, through 1970 when Mart Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com Your emails are welcome at SupermanFanPodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network which you can find at wwwfortressofbailey 2com Superman Podcast Network, where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of The Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman.
0: Superman, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound, faster than a speeding bullet, We've all heard it, we know how powerful Superman is, or can be. But with all of that might, he can still be destroyed by a single piece of rock. Kryptonite. Fragments of Superman's home planet Krypton changed by the atmosphere of his adopted planet Earth to become radioactive and deadly to Kryptonians. Now, it's an easy crutch for Superman writers to fall back on. Anytime Superman needs to be challenged, it's as easy as pulling out the Kryptonite card. And the fact that his main weakness is kryptonite but not his only one the one weakness he really that most of the public know he has knows he has it just leads a lot of people to feel like superman doesn't hold any interest cuz here is a man who could do pretty much anything and everything beyond human ability until exposed to a green rock and a lot of people say it doesn't hold a lot of in the way of re- relatability so let me tell you straight up that's bunk rather than go to the toy box pull out the kryptonite card Why not explore his survivor's guilt over being nearly the last of his kind? And what about the dual identity? I mean, that would wear on anybody's psyche. And how about the fact that Superman can save thousands, but at the end of the day, the one he wasn't able to save is the one that haunts him? Superman is flawed and very human beneath that invulnerable exterior. I'm not saying to make Superman emo, but look deeper and there's a ton of relatability. It's not that he has all this power, it's what he does with it and the reasons why he does that, and what he overcomes internally to make super. that's what makes Superman or any character in any medium interesting and relatable. You say Peter Parker has money woes and girl trouble, Superman grew up poor and dated a mermaid. The X-Men are outcasts protecting the world that hates them, Superman was the first comic outcast. The Walking Dead deals with deep psychological themes amidst an apocalypse. Superman has seen one planet destroyed by its own machinations and could face another being destroyed by its own. What I'm saying is there's a better way to write Superman rather than throw Kryptonite at every turn to bring him down to our, our level. Superman already walks on our level, and when he looks down on us from the sky, he knows what it's, look like, what it's like to look up at it too. Anyway, I'm going to get off my soapbox there. Just keep that in mind if any Superman writers happen to listen to my show, which I would be surprised. Um, my first real education on kryptonite came in the form of a book called The Best of DC Blue Ribbon Digest, number 36, Superman vs. Kryptonite, which featured stories about the various forms of kryptonite, primarily from the Silver Age, a little bit in the Bronze Age. I read and reread this book over and over and made good use of the kryptonite chart on the back cover of the book. So if you are able to track that down, it doesn't pop up all that often, I highly recommend that book. Just for pure readability, a little bit of background on Kryptonite. It's a nice uh, primer. Now for this episode, I turned to the Essential Superman Encyclopedia once again, which is an inexhaustible resource, I won't lie. I kind of balked at first at the $30 price tag. Totally worth it, and more. And I also went to the DC Comics database and Comic Vine on the internet. So let's go ahead and let's talk about Kryptonite. I mean, it's been a big piece of the Superman mythology for decades. But it didn't make its first appearance in a comic. It first appeared in a 1943 Adventures of Superman radio show episode. It was primarily a plot device developed to allow Clayton Bud Collier to take occasional time off from his voice duties. I mean, after all, his bombastic, This is a job for Superman! wouldn't really be needed if all Superman was doing that week was moaning in a hospital bed. Now, if Superman creator Jerry Siegel had been allowed, it would have appeared, at least essentially anyway, in a 1940 story called The K-Metal from Krypton. Now, this story, which was never formally published, would have seen Superman, still in his early stages, coming across K-Metal, which had the same effects of kryptonite, pretty much the same origin. Also, Lois Lane would have discovered Clark Kent's secret identity and been allowed to help him cover it up. Can you imagine what the mythology would have been like if the story had seen print? It didn't. Instead, it remained lost until 1988 when Mr. Mark Wade discovered the script and outline in DC Comics Deep Storage. At this point, the story has been restored to a great extent, and it's available at kmetal.nu, which I will post that link in the show notes. Instead, the Deadly Meteorite wouldn't appear in comics until November-December 1949, Superman number 61 in a story entitled Superman Returns to Krypton, written by Bill Finger and drawn by Al Plastino. In this issue, a swindler named Dan Rivers, posing as Swami Riva, became the first man to discover Kryptonite when he realized that the red meteorite that he placed in his turban had a weakening effect on Superman. Red. That's right, in its first comic book appearance... Kryptonite was red and not green, which of course wouldn't be the last time that color would show up, but the next time around the effects would be decidedly different, and we will get to that. This was an encounter that actually, uh, as a, just as a quick note, it actually is where the Golden Age Superman learned that he was born on another planet. So, quite a relevant story. And Kryptonite would be shown also be shown as gray in Adventure Comics 171 back in December 1951 which is actually just a coloring error since the traditional green color, actually made its first appearance in Action Comics number 141 in 1950 in the story Luthor's Secret Weapon, written by Alvin Schwartz and drawn by Wayne Boring. And this showed Luthor able to analyze it and make a synthetic form of kryptonite. This issue actually caused a retcon in terms of how kryptonite was discovered. In this issue, the origin of kryptonite is told that Superman was discovered laying unconscious next to a glowing green rock. And kryptonite, at least in the most traditional form of it, was green from then on. And the effects of green kryptonite on Superman, well, of course, they cause weakness, sometimes a complete loss of his powers, and exposure seems to cause great pain and Superman slowly draining him until death, at which time his skin turns green from the radiation. Hold that thought on radiation. We're coming to that in just a moment. Green kryptonite, is the power source. It also generates a lot of... Obviously, with that radiation, it's almost like a nuclear reaction. It generates a lot of energy as well. It could be a great energy source. For example, the cyborg villain Metallo uses it as a power source. And in his first appearance in Action Comics number 252, The Menace of Metallo, written by Robert Bernstein and drawn by Al Plastino, uh, criminal John Corbin is killed in a car accident but revived in a metal body by scientist Emmett Vale and Mattel's original body was powered by uranium pellets, which would drain and have to be changed out like batteries. But Vale knew that there was another power source that could power it infinitely. And Corbin actually discovered that that was kryptonite, and stole what he thought was a piece of green K. However, it turned out to be a painted rock, and Corbin dropped it. He got better, of course, and subsequent appearances featured him as a worthy opponent of Superman, not just because of his powerful cybernetic body, but it's also fueled by kryptonite. Other kryptonite-based villains were the kryptonite kid, later the kryptonite man, whose entire body was made of green K, and also Titano, a giant ape that shot kryptonite from his eyes. The meteorite seems to be capable of being melted, liquefied, changed in any number of ways. We've seen kryptonite bullets, kryptonite dust, so that begs the question of why isn't it invulnerable on Earth, like Superman, since it comes from the same planet? And if it isn't invulnerable, why doesn't it burn up when entering our atmosphere? Well, this question was actually answered in a story called The Curse of Kryptonite from Superman number 130, written by Otto Bender and drawn by Al Plastino. In the story, it's revealed that Kryptonite cannot combine with oxygen and therefore can't combust. Now, After John Byrne's revamp of Superman in 1986, only one fist-sized chunk of Kryptonite existed for quite a bit of that era. And it formed not only Metallo's Kryptonite heart, but also the gem in a ring that Lex Luthor wore. Ironically, the radiation from Lex Luthor's ring would give him cancer, causing him to lose his hand. And on the television show Smallville, green kryptonite causes genetic mutations granting normal humans super abilities, which was a plot device that produced the Freak of the Week format in Season 1. So, how does kryptonite work in terms of real science? Well, for that answer, I turn to the book The Science of Superman by Mark Wolverton. Wolverton notes that radiation is defined as the transmission of energy from one place to another, kind of like waves of water, point A to point B. Therefore, radiation actually includes the entire electromagnetic spectrum, light, radio waves, so on. Now, jumping back, since Krypton was basically worn by a dwarf star in the form of a red sun, Superman would essentially be equipped to handle higher radiation of that on Earth based on his genetics. He would develop solar cells that work like a uh, possessing processing energy through photosynthesis, absorbing and, rather than internally. And therefore, that planet with that higher defense against harsh environment like radiation would contain a higher proportion of radioactive elements as well. It would have developed that. Now These would have been altered by the violent destruction of the planet, creating the newer isotopes in the same way that a nuclear explosion does, which is the part that makes kryptonite dangerous in general. So, having come from that planet, Superman would have developed, just based on his own genetics, a three-part defense against Krypton's original atmosphere, which works tenfold, if not more, on Earth. So he'd have the solar cells that absorb the energy from sunlight, he would also have a bioelectric field capable of warding off charged particles, and it would produce a more dense skin structure, hence invulnerability, and have an effective cellular repair system, essentially a healing factor. Now, while pretty much anything that can get thrown on him in Earth would be deflected by one or more of these defenses, but one of them would have to be d- impaired to do any damage, of course. Now, kryptonite, with its higher level of radiation, basically cancels out Superman's natural bioelectric field, which allows the harmful radiation to pass through his dense skin, which overwhelms his body, uh, body's ability to repair itself to the point of collapse, really, since it can't get itself back on track. So essentially it'd be like a human being exposed to a high highly charged uh, piece of uranium. So it produce radiation sickness, but in this case it's more powerful and perfectly tuned to Superman. So to sum it up, Kryptonite's waves are ideally suited to easily bypass Superman's natural defenses and then hit him with a superpowered dose of high levels of radiation based on its origin. Now the reason he recuperates when not in the presence of kryptonite is that his body's cellular structure repairs itself. It's able to reactivate and correct his body because it's not being canceled out by the radioactive waves. And this also helps to explain why lead blocks the effects of kryptonite, much like it does pretty much all radiation. Since kryptonite's effects are primarily that of a nuclear radiation, the element works in the same way. Now, not all kryptonite kills or weakens the man of steel. Red kryptonite, officially made its uh, first appearance in a tale called The Super Sentry of Smallville back in Adventure Comics 252. At this point, it was changed from its standard variety um, when it would pass through a strange cosmic cloud. Instead of weakening or killing Superman, Red K actually has very unpredictable effects and never the same thing twice. Pretty much used as just a comical device left and right. Because each exposure changes Superman or any Kryptonian in strange ways. Under the effects of Red Kryptonite, Superman has been changed into a dragon, a giant, a dwarf, rendered temporarily blind to anything green, gained telepathy, grown extra limbs, changed into a humanoid ant, aged rapidly, grown a beard that would make Alan more jealous, and of course turned evil. Luckily, the effects of red kryptonite usually wore off after 24 hours, but sometimes it could take up to 48 or 272 hours to actually wear off. In the post-crisis on Infinite Earth's continuity, red kryptonite did not occur naturally, as it does. Uh, Mr. Mix's Pitilic once constructed it using magic. The result was Superman temporarily lost his powers. In another instance, specifically the Tower of Babel story in JLA number 43-46, through 46, written by Mark Wade. This story shows super, uh, showed that Batman created as a non-lethal safeguard for Superman an accelerated half-life in kryptonite, which created the red variety based on the, the change. And this caused Superman's skin to become translucent, allowing his his absorption of sun to go uncontrollable and increase to the point where Superman could not act And it was actually a fairly similar effect to what we would see in the show, uh, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, because Red Kryptonite actually caused Superman's powers to become uncontrollable. Very similar. Now, back on the show Superboy, or Adventures of Superboy, Red Kryptonite simply made Superboy evil upon the first exposure, and then back to himself with a second dose. And on Smallville, the red version of Kryptonite actually makes Kryptonians, uh, well, removes all inhibitions. Basically, allowing Clark to be a real super D. And it also recently it was recently used on an episode of Batman the Brave and the Bold, in which it turned Superman into a super jerk. And just a side note, if you have not seen the episode, Battle of the Superheroes, I implore you to track it down. I mean, the episode was over the top in all the right ways, and jammed so much into 30 minutes. I mean, Luthor, Metallo, Mix, Mr. Mix's Pitilic, Crypto, Toy Man, so many references, I lost count. However, Steve Eunice went through... And I'd uh, listed them on Superman homepage, and there were some that I didn't even catch. I mean, references from the Silver Age to Dark Knight Returns. And it was just so much fun. It was a top-notch episode all the way around. I can't recommend it highly enough. Anyway, back on topic. Following Infinite Crisis, Red Kryptonite returned to its original pre-crisis on Infinite Earths form. Now moving on, the first time we saw blue kryptonite was in a story by Otto Bender and Wayne Boring entitled The Son of Bizarro from October 1960, Superman No. 140. Blue kryptonite was created when Superman used the duplication ray that created bizarro on a normal chunk of green kryptonite, producing an imperfect duplicate. And blue kryptonite affects bizarros in the same way that green kryptonite affects normal kryptonians. Now in the post-crisis continuity, specifically in Superman Batman number 25, it actually ramps up Bizarro's intellect, giving them excellent verbal skills and impeccable manners, which kind of freaks Bizarro out, I won't lie. And in the direct-to-DVD movie Justice League Crisis on Two Earths, the blue kryptonite in there had the same effect on Ultraman of the alternate Earth as green kryptonite has on our Earth Superman. Now Blue K Blue K was introduced in Smallville, but here the effects were actually to strip Kryptonians of their powers when in contact with the meteorite, but the powers would return when away from from contact. However, looking back, if you're looking to rob a Kryptonian of their powers, look no further than gold kryptonite. First introduced in the Super Revenge of the Phantom Zone Prisoner in Superman number 157, that story written by Edmund Hamilton and drawn by the original the, the man Kurt Swan, a Phantom Zone prisoner named Quexel plans on using this form of kryptonite to defeat Superman. Instead, ends up turning it on himself and removing Quexel's powers permanently. Basically, it's just gone in the in pre-Crisis. Power's gone, not coming back. Now in the from Crisis to Crisis continuity, Superman used gold K kryptonite, gold kryptonite. Pardon me, to rob the pocket universes General Zod and his cohorts of their powers while not affecting the main of steel since it was from another reality. And following Infinite Crisis, Gold Kryptonite made its official reappearance in continuity. However, now Gold Kryptonite only removes a Kryptonian's powers temporarily for as little as 15 to 30 seconds. Now there are some forms of Kryptonite that don't have quite the storied history. Black Kryptonite, for example, was originally introduced on Smallville and this caused Clark's Kryptonian side to split from his human side. Okay, admittedly, it doesn't make the most sense, but Red Kryptonite doesn't either. And it was brought to DC Continuity post-Infinite Crisis with Supergirl Volume 5, Number 2, when Darkseid gave Lex Luthor a piece, splitting Supergirl into two, just like you would have seen in Superman 3, when Gus Gorman made that in synthetic Kryptonite. I'd rather not talk about it. Now, White Kryptonite was introduced in Adventure Comics, Number 279. It's actually harmful to plant life from Krypton. And silver kryptonite was not originally kryptonite. It was actually a prank played by Jimmy Olsen back in Superman's Pal 70 to celebrate Superman's silver anniversary in 1963. However, silver kryptonite was brought into play in Smallville by Milton Fine, a.k.a. Brainiac, who imbued the liquid metal his body was made of into regular kryptonite, and this form caused hallucinations and paranoia. Now, silver kryptonite is actually fairly special in the post-crisis continuity because it actually had the effect of marijuana on our hero. I can't make this stuff up. He had a loss of inhibitions, altered perceptions, and cravings. Silver kryptonite may be the only form of kryptonite to drive Superman to an oversized bag of Cheetos. And then there are the Xs. X-kryptonite was the form Grant that granted Supergirl's cat Streaky with his superpowers... Introduced in Action Comics number 261, not to be confused with Kryptonite X, which is an entirely different thing from the post-Crisis era, and this was following the Man of Steel's death and resurrection. This was at the point where the cyborg Superman tried to blast the weakened Superman with Kryptonite, which passed through the Eradicator, and then altered it to the point, well, the combination gave Superman back his full power, and this happened in Superman Volume 2 number 82. So even though he, it brought back his power, it caused him to absorb sunlight at a much higher rate. So he gained too much energy, too much strength, too much mass, and he finally had to discharge the amplified energy to restore his system. Then there's Jewel Kryptonite, which appeared in Action Comics number 310, in which Jack Sur, Phantom Zone prisoner extraordinaire, used the mineral formed from the Jewel Mountains of Krypton to amplify his psychic powers within the Phantom Zone and he was actually able to convert his mind waves into energy which detonated any explosive material in our world. Now this form also made its way into Smallville in Season 9, in which Clark could use it to make anybody obey one single mental command. And Metallo actually tried to kill Batman with something known as Slow Kryptonite in The Brave and the Bold number 175. With its particle emissions slowed down, this form actually affected humans in the same way as Green would affect Kryptonians. And Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 92, shows us Magno Kryptonite, which would draw anything Kryptonian to it and then have the same effect as Green Kryptonite, just without the option to escape, since you're drawn to it. Now, one final version I'm going to touch upon today is Pink Kryptonite. And this form was introduced in Supergirl, Volume 4, number 79. And when Supergirl visits the pre-crisis era in this issue, it seems that this form of Kryptonite made Superman effeminate or, or gay. And I want to be clear that I'm simply telling you what happened in that issue. Uh, My only comment that I want to offer is this form of kryptonite, it seems like a bad joke on Peter David's part, it really came across as disrespectful to the gay community. However, that is as part of the kryptonite landscape, I wanted to touch upon it. And now there are a lot of hybrid kryptonites, red-green, red-this, that, and the other, we're not going to get into those, just because that's too much and we could be here all day. But one other observation is that Superman toys, specifically in Kenner's Super Friends line that are aimed at younger children, they always seem to be packaged with kryptonite and then some sort of device for handling it. And this even goes back to the Total Justice line from the 90s when Superman's Fractal Tech gear was based around shooting kryptonian beams. That's just mean people, packaging him in, in, a, in a spot where he's stuck with that kryptonite. That's meaner than stealing a stun stone, sunstone and imbuing it with kryptonite while creating artificial landmass. Not that I'd know. Now, if you're looking for your own kryptonite, look no further than the Super Museum in Metropolis, Illinois, where you can get your own green chunk of kryptonite in their gift shop and online store. And DC Direct actually made several kryptonite collectibles, One is a replica of green kryptonite in a sort of crystalline form under glass, and another comes with multiple colors of kryptonite on a light-up base as part of their JLA JLA trophy room line. And finally, there was a shard of kryptonite in a glass case based uh, on Luthor's shiv from Superman Returns. And Mattel produced a glow stick, which fit into a clear 6-inch kryptonite casing for Superman Returns. So I would recommend looking for those on eBay. And that's going to wrap up this portion. We're going to continue on the theme of Kryptonite right after this promo for one of our other great Superman podcasts. Rocketed as a being from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Byrne reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. And moving right along this week, let's take a look at our Superman the Animated Series episode, which is episode 5, entitled A Little Piece of Home. This episode originally aired on September 14th, 1996. It was written by Hilary J. Bader, directed by Toshiko Masuda. Music was done by Christopher Carter, and of course it starred Tim Daly as Superman, Clark Kent, Dana Delaney as Lois Lane, Clancy Brown as Lex Luthor, and we also saw John Rubinstein as Peterson. Brad Garrett returning as Bibbo, Thomas Wilson as Joey, Lisa Edelstein as Mercy, and Victor Brandt as Professor Hamilton. And the episode opens with Lex Luthor holding a press conference to open the Lex Luthor Museum of Natural History. The press conference is basically giving a sneak preview of the museum where all of the priceless artifacts are displayed in open cases protected by a unique security system. It's supposedly impregnable, which is ironically accessed at that, as he's bragging about it, by a small explosion inside the museum. And Clark Kent, using his superheroing, notices the break from outside and asks Lois, Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Just typical Luther Blarney. Using his X ray vision, Clark spots two thieves entering the museum through a hole in the floor. One of them is startled by a giant T Rex on display. Outside, Lois grills Lex about the museum being a large tax shelter for LexCorp which, of course, doesn't make Baldy too happy. Lex doesn't answer, and Lois turns to notice that Clark is gone. Inside the museum, one of the thieves reaches out to grab a huge diamond and finds himself thrown back by a surge of electricity, which, oddly, doesn't set off any alarms in this top-notch security. And the second thief pulls on a simple pair of rubber gloves and easily removes the diamond from the case. Elsewhere, Superman flies into a manhole and follows the sewers to the hole made by the thieves, and just so, just as the pair think they're easily going to slip away, Superman shows up at the museum.
1: What do you think we'll get for him, Nito? I'd say five to ten, with time off for good behavior.
0: The thieves, of course, try to evade Superman, throwing a spear, breaking a shield on him. Clearly, they're no match for this speed and strength that of the Man of Steel. Or are they? Suddenly, Superman becomes dizzy and weak, falling to the floor. As Superman crawls on the floor, the thieves actually get away just in time for Lex to lead the press conference into the museum to find Superman, stumbling out, telling Lex and Lois that there were two thieves who stole the jewels, and he thought that he could stop them. Lex berates the weakened Superman before Superman flies off to recuperate.
1: Well, next time you see one of my museums being robbed, call someone who can do something about it, like the police.
0: Back in his office, Lex uses the security camera footage to identify the thieves as Nito and Sam Corelli and tells his assistant-slash-bodyguard Mercy to see that they're dealt with. All I'm saying is we don't see these guys again. But, just then, Lex notices that Superman's weakness corresponds to being near a display case full of rare rocks, which Lex is elated to see. And every one of those rocks belongs to me. Meanwhile, back at the museum... A tour guide leads a group around, showing them some of the ancient dishware and crockery, which caused the societies to actually die from systemic metallic poisoning. The lady sure seems to have a lot of information that may be handy later. Clark, however, views the museum alone and stands near the display case that caused his weakness, only this time there are no effects, which perplexes him. Nothing's happening.
1: You were expecting them to dance for you?
0: the security guard tells Clark that they came this morning and changed the whole display case around. So they actually put new rocks in. The ones that weakened him are, of course, in Lex's hands, which at that moment, back at LexCorp, a pair of scientists are telling Lex about all but one of the rocks. They were perfectly normal, except for this one green glowing rock, which consists of minerals not even on the periodic table. You didn't notice a green glowing rock? Just me but they actually believe it originated in another solar system, which you and I both know is true. And Lex decides that they need to test the rock out on Superman himself, which one of the scientists, Peterson, takes an issue with, since this is a huge scientific discovery. It should should belong to one man. So, of course, Lex makes sure to put Peterson in his place, tells him there shouldn't be an idea in his head that he hasn't put there. Back at the Daily Planet, Lois is practicing her basketball skills by throwing paper into a trash can. When Clark approaches Lois, ask her, what's going on? Does Perry know you're doing this on his time? Lois says it helps her think, and she's really trying to figure out what happened to Superman. And before she gets too far, she actually gets a call from Professor Peterson, who's taken a small sliver of the green rock. Lex and Mercy, however, visit Joey, who is this big muscle-bound oaf. And Mercy makes sure to show him up by um, kicking the punching bag he was just blasting away off, right off the chain, quite simply. Anybody getting the feeling that you don't want to mess with Mercy? Mm-hmm. And Lex is uh, trying to get Joey to pull a job in Metropolis, which Joey is reluctant to do since Superman is there. He's, it's a sure bet he's going to get caught, and Lex is pl- explains he wants Joey to get caught. That's precisely the idea. And after the commercial break, Clark pulls a Spider-Man in a diner, helping a waitress who's falling to catch all the plates. And keep in mind, this predated Spider-Man for quite some time, so there's the originating spot. And Lois barges in and begins rattling off an order, which Clark had just been waiting to do, and Clark begins to feel faint for some reason. Lois is all fired up because she has a piece of the rock, which Peter has gave, given to her. And of course, this is what is causing Lois... or Pardon me. This is what's causing Clark to be weak. And Lois is on her way to Star Labs to have the rock analyzed. Lois asks Clark if he's catching something and orders him some orange juice and chicken soup before she goes. Meanwhile, just a few blocks down the road... On the rooftop of the Metropolis Treasury, a helicopter lands, and the transfer of printing plates for $100 bills takes place amongst armed guards. And as soon as the plates are in Commissioner Jones' hand, Joey and two other cronies show up in jumpsuits, brandishing flamethrowers. Joey demonstrates his flamethrower, igniting a fire which sets off the fire alarms in the building. Clark, leaving the diner, hears the alarms, sees the flames from over a block away, and does what he does, goes and changes. And the commissioner hands over the plates, explaining that the fire alarm means that, stay with me now, it means all of the elevators and exits in the building are sealed. There's no way off the roof. Okay, stop. Let me get this straight. If a fire breaks out in the Metropolis Treasury building, the building closes all of the doors, stairs, and elevators, leaving those inside the building trapped. How did this get past Metropolis Fire and Safety Code? Back on the roof, Joey reveals he has a jetpack, and the trio take to the skies, followed by Superman in hot pursuit. They do manage to slow Superman down by blowing up the the chopper that was on the roof, which Superman must dispose of in the bay. That's just going to saying that's going to cost the city money to clean up and get that thing fished out. But, once that helicopter's taken care of, Superman's back in pursuit, and he's being watched at multiple checkpoints as the fleeing felons blast him with flames, try to uh, wrap him up in steel cable, which he breaks easily, because, he, you know what, he's Superman. That's what he does. So, as Joey take, Superman takes out Joey's partner out, before focusing his attention on Joey himself, which leads Superman to the construction side of the LexCorp waterfront towers. And in the construction zone, Joey feigns giving up drawing Superman closer and closer to the center of the room, where the hunk of kryptonite hangs from the ceiling. So Superman becomes weak again, and Joey uses this as an opportunity to just wail away on Superman, announcing his punches as he goes. Roundhouse. Uppercut. But Joey gets sloppy, gets a little cocky, and ends up getting Superman out of the range of the rock, which allows Superman just enough time and and recuperation to fling them both into a drainage ditch safely, setting Joey on the side, and taking the plates back to be delivered. So Superman crawls out of that ditch with the briefcase holding the plates in hand. Day is saved, but man, he's looking rough. And we get a cameo here from Bibbo, who gives his professional opinion on Superman's current condition. Sue, you don't look so good. In Luther's office, Luther learns that the a piece of rock has ended up at Star Labs and assigns Mercy to find out who would have let this piece of his property slip. And Luther notices Superman floating outside of his office window, and he opens that up, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, at that height would probably cause some problems, but let's not get nitpicky. Luther offers Superman a deal. Superman leaves Luther alone, and Luther and his rock will leave Superman alone. Superman... Well, Superman politely declines. You will never control me, Luthor. Never!
1: Well then, I guess I'll have to kill you.
0: Lois is observed entering Star Labs, where Professor Hamilton finishes his analysis of the rock, explaining that Superman and the rock share a point of origin, Krypton.
1: You mean it came from Krypton? More than likely it is krypton, or rather a small piece of it, kryptonite, if you will.
0: And Professor Hamilton adds that the effects, of course, can be shielded by lead. And in the midst of this conversation, Lois gets a call that LexCorp is developing a synthetic version of kryptonite. Dr. Peterson explains this and arranges to have Lois and Superman meet him at the Lex Luthor Museum of Natural History. And it turns out that Peterson is being coached by Luther, who clearly caught on that he was the one that stole the sliver. And Luther tells Peterson that Mercy will see him home, which Peterson insists he can handle for himself. And Luther just tells Peterson that he would hate to wake up tomorrow and find out that something terrible happened to him. All I'm saying is Mercy is smiling pretty broadly, and this is the last time we see Peterson. And meanwhile, Superman and Lois show up at the museum, which is, surprise, surprise, a trap. The giant T-Rex that startled the thief at the beginning of the episode comes to life and drops the hunk of kryptonite on the ground. And the building building seals itself, leaving a weakened Superman and Lois trapped in the room with this dinosaur. And the T-Rex turns out to be a giant robot, controlled by, by Lex Luthor, and Lois laments that they have no lead, and Superman remembers the tour guide, talking about the systemic metallic poisoning. And that information seemed so extraneous at the time... The poisoning came from lead, which Superman tells Lois, who managed to make another free throw into one of the lead cups, blocking the kryptonite and allowing Superman to throw down with the dinosaur, taking out the Jurassic Nemesis and sealing the lead in the cup. And the episode wraps up with Superman thanking Lois for saving his life. And Lois tells him that an exclusive interview would even them up. As long as she prints nothing about kryptonite, Superman's fine with that. And he throws the lead cup into the bay leading to more pollution of Metropolis water supply and maybe a few flipper babies. So yeah, the episode, episode's final scene takes place at a dig site where workers are looking for more rocks, and shows that they are working for the Lex Luthor Museum of Natural History, so Luthor hasn't given up. And the final shot of the episode shows us another fragment of kryptonite embedded in the ground, letting us know that, of course, the danger is far from over. So, this episode, this episode had some pretty relevant firsts. Obviously, the first Kryptonite, which will, it'll pop up from time to time, that's what happens, but it's also the first animated appearance of Professor Emil Hamilton, although he's usually called just Professor Hamilton on the show. His origin on the show is a lot less sordid than in the comics. He first appeared in Adventures of Superman number 424 back in 1987, around the beginning of the Burn era, and in the comics, Hamilton did not. Well, he did work for Star Labs, but it was before we met the character. He, he quit Star to work on an electromagnetic magnetic generator, which Luthor stole and proceeded to victimize Hamilton by discrediting him and having him beaten. And Hamilton actually staged a fight between himself and Superman just to prove his invention worked, but his mind snapped and the confrontation proved almost deadly for him, Superman, and everybody involved. And after being released from prison and psychiatric treatment, Hamilton would actually go on to aid Superman as a sort of science advisor. Now, Hamilton would later snap again, actually several more times, but the last one being when he became the villain Ruin and attacked Superman's inner circle of allies and friends and family, and then framing the then-president and Superman friend Pete Ross for his actions. None of this plays out in the cartoon. I know that may be a spoiler, But Hamilton's comic book backstory, his eagerness to learn more about Superman, even though it doesn't play out here, Superman just made me distrustful of Hamilton in the show. I was waiting for the villainy to show up. That's not to say Hamilton doesn't betray Superman, but to be clear, that doesn't happen in the context of Superman the Animated Series. And to be honest, circumstances are a little bit different. And we may look at that if we get into the Justice League series down the road. But here, you know, Hamilton does prove to be more stable, and he does still have the erratic tension span still there. It's just not as pronounced as in the comics. The mental issues are kind of removed, and his personality is toned down a little, but Hamilton really does come off as a stereotypical absent-minded professor. And it's not entirely a bad thing in this context, since the, the episodes are generally made to stand out on their own, rather than be a part of a greater overall story. And we also see uh, Mercy Graves for the first time. Though no, her last name isn't said in the episode. Now Mercy would be one of the few characters to transition into the regular DC universe from the animated universe, along with Harley Quinn and Live Wire. And in the comics, Mercy was actually revealed to be an Amazon. This didn't play out in the animated series, but it kind of gives Mercy some context. I think it's definitely implied in the show, even though it never expressly said or, or shown. But for the most part, on the show, she's a side character. But how cool is it that Dr. Cuddy from House voices her, which creates a odd Superman connection? Because Hugh Laurie, who plays House, was cast as Perry White in Superman Returns. The only reason he had to back out was the fact that the show House became a huge hit. Ah, Problems, problems, right? Anyway, despite being that there was an odd undercurrent to the music, which is kind of random out of nowhere. There's almost a jazzy swing type of vibe here and there. And that's not bad, but it took place in odd parts of the episode, specifically in Superman's Pursuit of Joey. But it switches back to the regular themes throughout most of the episode. So it's this odd flip-flop. I know that's odd to notice, but to me it just stood out like a sore thumb. I mean, it was right there and I couldn't deny it. And also... A little note, Joey was voiced by Thomas F. Wilson, who played Biff Tannin and the subsequent Tannins in the Back to the Future trilogy. I know it was probably cross-prohibitive. I know animation is tricky. But wouldn't it have been great to have Joey crash into a pile of manure? Or is that just me? I don't know. Overall, most of the episode relied on convenience, which I think by now we've realized is one of my pet peeves. <laughs> Clark happens to overhear the museum tour guide talking about systemic metal poisoning and figures out how to block the kryptonite. Lois practices her basketball shooting skills, which comes into play in the final act. The thief notices the giant dinosaur, which becomes the nemesis in the final act. Most of the time, that's simple establishment, and we mentioned the Back to the Future trilogy, which was one of the biggest as far as setups and payoffs. The difference is that spread across... Uh, in well, just Back to the Future itself, it spread across two hours. In the trilogy itself, it spread across six. So, it just seemed more noticeable within the context of a 20-some-odd-minute runtime episode rather than a, a full-length movie. And more here than we see in most subsequent episodes down the road as well. The odd thing about this episode, or good thing, we did see a lot more Clark Kent in this episode than previously. At least the bespectacled suit wearing Clark Kent, because in Last Son of Krypton, you did see Clark, but he was younger, more formative, so not quite the Clark we know. In fact, Clark was in the episode more than Superman. Although, to be fair, there are a lot of characters here, (laughs) so we were really, really balancing a lot. The show actually did a good job of balancing Lex and his storyline, or part of the storyline, Clark and Lois, all the way throughout the episode. Now, the episode serves as a good world-building episode, but doesn't completely stand on its own. It introduces a few characters, introduces the concept of kryptonite, but Superman's solution through the whole episode seems to be throwing things in the bay, which isn't eco-friendly. Which, uh, I mean, I guess that's what he does. And the final fight is against a robotic dinosaur. Look, while this is cool, it feels like a hollow enemy, even remote-controlled by Lex. Superman fighting a hollow dinosaur, you picture... Maybe the the greater nemesis watching from a balcony rubbing his hands and cackling instead once the dinosaur is done, there's no fighting the main nemesis it could be a mad scientist could be i don't know, so it's just the dinosaur and done i don't know it it felt really hollow, it just felt hollow, and the d v d on this episode actually has a pop up trivia ta- track so and i'm using I'm not using the original releases on d v d Rather than the release of the full seasons, as far as I know, the extras are the same. If I am incorrect on that, let me know. But the pop-up trivia gives great gives tidbits about the show in general. But to be honest, it doesn't really give any great insight. I'd much rather have had a commentary track because I love those. Um, it just they were relevant additions to the episode, but just not stellar. The character designs for Joey and Peterson were pretty bland, and the conversation between Lex and Superman, yes, that may have been intense, but we've seen it before. We saw it in The Last Son of Krypton, two episodes back. Now, I know spaced out week by week, which I guess I'm technically watching that, that wouldn't be a big deal, and who knows whose first episode is going to be, you know, that episode. But it just seemed like that tension can only play out so many times before it gets old. And it kind of got old for a little bit in the comics. Superman showing up at the office, having some tit-for-tat with Lex, and then two men getting ticked. Now, the voice cast was fine overall, but Tim Daly just wasn't at his peak here. But to be honest, that owes a little bit more to the, the bland script rather than his acting talents. There wasn't really a moment for him to really jump out and shine, save for the you know time off for good behavior line. And most of the time he was weakened anyway, so it was all, Ugh, ugh. Oh. And anyway, you can probably sample that on Audacity if if that Uh oh wasn't creepy enough. And Clancy Brown and Dana Delaney owned this episode. Lois was wired up, and Luther was smug while still intense underneath. And I think it just boils down to the fact that the debut of Kryptonite should have been a little bit more fan done with a little bit more fanfare. So I'm gonna give this episode three S Shields out of five, right on the medium line without standing out. And next week we'll be looking at the parasite making his animated debut. So join me and let's go ahead and listen to another promo and come back.
1: And more, SupermanHomepage.com.
0: And that wraps up episode 19. And this has been a fun episode. And uh, just a couple of quick notes. I uh, remember that the Superman Forever Daily Planet will be coming your way. If not daily, it'll be pretty darn close because we're looking at a lot of news coming our way with the movie development. And also at the same time, I'm going to be recording a promo later on this week to get that together because uh i happen to be listening to from crisis to crisis recently and my promo popped up which was always kind of mind-blowing to me and flattering and then i realized man that promo is crap and i think we've come a long way in terms of sound and uh, by the way i'm working on this new computer i've been trying to, to balance the sound with the new sound card if anybody's having any issues with the with the episodes that i've been recording this one or the last one let me know so i can get that calibrated um I usually listen to it through a monitor, through the soundboard, but it's turned out that's not as reliable, and when I'm listening to it through my computer speakers when editing, it sounds okay, but I just want to make sure, so if there's any sound issues, let me know, and I'll get that fixed. But otherwise, you know, it's been a great uh, great episode. I'll be back with you on Thursday, when we're going to be reviewing the Superman books that hit the shelves in April of 2007. And just a heads up on that, there are only two I'm going to explain more later, but looks like we'll be covering Superman 661 and Superman Confidential Number 4. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit about Wonder Woman within that context and her how she relates to Superman. So that'll be Thursday. I look forward to seeing you there again. And this is uh, Episode 19. I'm going to wrap it up. Remember, you can always leave a review for me at iTunes. Just search for Superman Forever Radio. You can always email me with any Superman questions or criticisms. Let me know. I'm at mail. At SupermanForever.com, that's mail, as in M-A-I-L, not the other kind. And of course, I am on Twitter. You can find me on there as at SupermanForever. That's Superman, the number four, ever. And of course, I'm on Facebook. Look me up at SupermanForever.com on Facebook. You can always find me at the Superman Podcast Network which is now at supermanpodcastnetwork.com along with uh, many other great podcasts which I highly recommend. So give those a listen and then meet me back here next Thursday and in between now and then keep on fighting the never-ending battle. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof and related elements are trademark of DC Comics, Warner Brothers Entertainment Company, This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster.